0: Uh, A few years ago, George, I wrote a book uh, called uh, A Tree is a Tree, an autobiography, and in that book I put the outstanding incidents that uh, I had remembered over a period of years in Hollywood since I had arrived here in my, I think it was uh, about 20, uh, that is, I was about 20 when I arrived, and... uh, The the ones I remember uh, and many of my feelings about motion picture directing and why motion pictures are made and why I was interested in them and uh, how I felt uh, stories should be chosen and how I felt about the public and an obligation to the public and an obligation to live up to one's talents and uh, to the best of their ability... I covered so many of those things in the book that uh, uh, there is one field or one bit of activity that occurs to me today, and that is the the uh, the, the work on uh, War and Peace, which occurred after the after the book was published. Uh, war and Peace was uh, started in. Uh, Early that is, I started on it early in 1955. Actually, I've only made two films since the end of the book. Uh, since the book was written, uh, those two films are "Man Without a Star," which was a, a rather quick western. We call it more or less a quickie western. Made at Universal with with uh, Kirk Douglas and uh, and War and Peace. Uh, There's not too many things to talk about in the uh, Man Without a Star, uh, except that it was the first uh, time that I had returned to Universal uh, since I was there as a, uh, a script clerk and a company clerk and a writer. Uh, actually, in the book uh I t- I tell about uh going to work the first steady job that I had in Hollywood was a, a sort of a company clerk we kept the books uh for all the expenditures uh, in the daily uh, working of the company each company had one of these clerks he was a sort of a bookkeeper for for each company and the pay was uh, $12 a week and uh I remember very well I didn't have an automobile and we I lived in Hollywood, and uh, uh, the I think the round trip bus fare was something like three dollars and a half a week out to Universal City and back. So that cut into my twelve dollars. At that time, my first wife Florence Vidor was was working uh, uh, at the Vitagraph Company. She was getting about five dollars a day. And she would work two or three days a week. So we, by putting our two salaries together, we managed to eat fairly regularly. So uh, this man without a star was the first time that I had worked for a Universal company uh, since the early days when I had been there as a. Uh, actually, the last job I had at Universal was many years ago as a writer. I also tell about this in the book. And the salary then was $40 a week. And uh, that's, uh, I think, the incident where they stopped all the, the the comedy department of writers, all the writers who were writing about comedy, and I was one of them, upon whom the axe fell at that time. And uh, so I went back to Universal to do this picture, Man Without a Star. I was only in there for remarkably short time of ten weeks from the time I went to the studio to the time I left. and uh, The picture was rather successful uh, financially. It is nothing unusual. Uh, it was rather a fast pot-boiler and uh, nothing that I particularly am in any way proud of. Uh, not uh, like some of the other pictures and the one that followed, War and Peace, which I feel very happy about, uh, in spite of the conditions and many obstacles that uh, uh, we encountered in making the film. The film is entirely, War and Peace, is entirely an Italian production, and uh, the first contact I had was a telephone call from New York, from an Italian producer, asking whether I was free and available and uh, if I would like to make a film in Italy of war and peace. And uh, I said that uh, I would like very much to, and the, uh, the idea intrigued me. Uh, and he flew out to California with a 506-page script under his arm, which uh, was written hurriedly in Italy and which eventually turned out that we couldn't use one single page of this script, but this was had apparently served his purpose in New York, that he could walk around and put on someone's desk a script, a finished script, so-called, of War and Peace. It, it was uh, valueless as far as making the film was concerned, but there he had it, and he was able to put the picture together with that beginning. So uh, I had read War and Peace... Uh, that is, I want to correct that, I had read part of War and Peace like so many other Americans. (laughs) I'd gotten to about page 100, and uh, this uh, uh, previously, but I always thought that it it would make a very good film because it was such a great novel, although I didn't know exactly why. Well, by the time that he flew out, I had not gotten uh, very much farther than my 100 pages, previous reading of 100 pages, being a slow reader, this has always been one of the great problems to me in in looking for stories or considering stories is uh, because I always feel as if I'm practically making the film and designing the sets and finding the locations and whenever I read a book, I can't just skim through it and just pull out the best part of it it's It's a laborious job and uh, uh, so out he came and. In a reasonably short time, we made a contract for me to go to Europe, and he flew back to Europe. Uh, I, in the meantime, started slowly reading and marking each page and each line and each paragraph that I thought would be useful and would would make uh, uh, good scenes and uh, getting the characters all straight and seeing what characters we could should keep and what ones we should leave out and what episodes should be kept and what episodes would have to be dropped. This process took actually about six or eight weeks and uh, uh, I, I therefore took a, a train and a, and a boat to Europe rather than f- flying because I didn't want to get there before I'd been able to finish reading the book. Uh, uh, And as it was, I still had about 100 pages to go when I arrived in Naples in uh, February the 28th, uh, 1955. The uh, uh, whole experience in Italy was uh, a very uh, enlightening and a very uh, amusing, very inspiring one. I had seen uh, some fine Italian films like Bicycle Thief and Open City and and, uh, films that had been, uh, well, made off the cuff, so to speak. Uh, uh, In in Italy, they had used the technique that we used years ago in silent pictures here. We went to work many days without having uh, everything written out in front of us. And this way, you can take advantage of the moment. Many scenes in the crowd, and hallelujah, and many, some of the best scenes in the big parade uh, of, of my pictures were, were done uh, without being written out beforehand. It was a question of taking advantage of, uh, of uh, whatever situation, or whatever, how the people felt that day, or how, the, how I felt, or what occurred. Fact, I think in the book, I tell something about a, a chewing gum scene in the big parade with a with a, a writer standing up. you remember that, do you George uh, a writer standing back chewing gum and he he said, "Come on, let's see some action here and uh, uh-huh. uh I didn't know what the action was going to be, but when I saw him chewing gum, the thought occurred to me that uh French girls didn't chew gum, and that and the, it, that idea could be introduced by the Doughboy, the G.I., and uh, there, that is the genesis of the scene, of the chewing gum scene in the big parade, just by watching a friend of mine chewing gum and uh, and and waiting for me to go ahead and start making a scene. Well, I never thought in this case that The War and Peace, such a gigantic 1,600-page book and a film running about two and a half times as long As uh, any other picture, or as as most pictures, the average picture, would would ever be done uh, off the cuff. But there were many scenes and many days that uh, the work had to be done. some days I had to take the book and mark uh, lines and uh, episodes and descriptions of scenes. And I would have a secretary copy... uh, uh, the dialogue right out of the book and give it to the actors. That occurred on quite a few days. Uh, one asks why this is necessary. Well, the explanation to that question is uh, that, that there was a race on with uh, to beat Mr. Michael Todd, who was also announced that he was going to make uh, War and Peace. And the Italians were determined to be the first one to go into production. And uh, so they had arbitrarily set a, a starting date, which was only about uh, four months away. And it, it meant that, uh, that the finished, polished script and all the costumes and all the sets <coughs> could not be gotten ready that, uh, that soon. So we 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 had a pretty good half or two-thirds of a script, but uh, nevertheless um, uh, we didn't have time to do a complete polished f- script. Now, uh, another thing that made starting necessary at the time was that uh, uh, Mr. DeLaurenis, the producer, had signed up uh, Audrey Hepburn to start on a certain date, and... Uh, Although we succeeded in delaying it two weeks, that's the most delay we could get. So the picture started on July the 4th, 1955. And uh, uh, the, the uh, it was an Italian company and the executives were all Italian. The picture was being made in English with the eye to the English and American market. And... Uh, uh, but the language difficulty, the, the, the conveying of ideas and discussions and conferences presented a huge problem because everything had to be translated. My Italian at the time uh, extended only to ordering meals and uh, telling taxi drivers uh, where to go, but it didn't uh, include having a profound script discu- discussion on war and peace. Uh so, uh, this this obstacle was was naturally overcome by having always translators present, and uh, in a few instances we could get uh, bilingual, uh, either writers or, or, or uh, art director, musician. Some of them were were bilingual, which helped. But the producers, not at all, the executive the production man they spoke no no English at all so uh this is one of the one of the big interesting uh problems uh that 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 had to be overcome then 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 the producers you can you can imagine that they would go in and see the rushes of the film and they couldn't understand uh, what the dialogue was about uh and we had some arguments about that finally we uh, even even the cutter one of the the first cutter we had was an Italian, and he didn't understand English. You can imagine cutting uh, English dialogue without knowing the language at all. Well, he finally had a script, a translated script, and then we got him an assistant uh, American girl who could keep him informed at all times what the people were saying. This is just a, a short resume of some of the problems that uh, were encountered under those conditions. There there was a, a, an instance, one of the executives of Paramount came over and uh, at the end of the picture, near the end of the picture, and, and he said to me, he said, King, I bet, you can, I bet you can write a book about what happened during the making of this picture. And I said, during the making of the picture, I could write a book about what happened last Saturday. Uh, That's the way it went most of the days. Uh, That Saturday I spoke of was uh, uh, trying to get a satisfactory uh, bunch of horses and equipment to do a Troika scene that was one of my favorites in the book and in the picture. But uh, the producer was against it and against my doing it and so I never received much cooperation. The Troikas I had tried it once before up in the Italian Alps by the way the whole picture the entire picture was ma- shot in Italy. The snow scenes up at a ski resort called Sestriere, and the Napoleon crossing the uh, Berezina uh, going out of Moscow on the re- going out of Russia on the retreat was done in the Po Valley, the place near Alexandria. But this troika scene, when we tried it near uh, near uh, Sestriere, uh, the troika so badly made it just came apart. I I didn't have the actors then, and we used. Uh, doubles. Well, the the only doubles we could get were there was a ski meet going on, and there were Cambridge students there at this meet, and so we had the clothes with us, but none of the original actors, and uh, we tried to make these young students there for a ski meet look like the original cast. Well, that part would have been all right if the troikas and the harness and the horses would have held up under it. Well, uh, they just, uh, the equipment just came apart up there and so again and finally we we were snowed in in Rome and the producer said what would you like to do to use all this snow and I said I'd like to do the troika scene properly so out we went again and this time we got stuck in the snow and we hauled out and uh, by then they'd run out of money so everything was very much makeshift and uh, uh, this time the Troika had been made. They got horses that were too big for the for the shafts and the harness. And uh, the first run through, the Troikas ran over the... caught up with the horses and ran them down and injured two of the horses. And again, we were without the Troika scene. Anyway, it was put together. It was in the picture, and a lot of people liked it. But I didn't like it because I had such better ideas. I had a vision of how it should be. And the pictures... Are, dreadful compromise on what, uh, what, uh, the way I had it envisioned. But this is, this happens sometimes. And you, the director has to just stand his ground and stick to it. But sometimes even so, he doesn't always get his way. Uh, there was another scene in the picture that took place in an opera house. And, uh, they kept telling me that there were no opera houses available and that we couldn't use the Rome opera house and I was out uh, in the country looking at little opera houses and we had done the part in the box that includes Audrey Hepburn but when it, uh, and included the principals. But we had to have some scenes in the audience with two or three lesser principals and uh, we had to have this sequence in the picture. There was just no way to l- eliminate it. And, but they just, uh, it was sort of up to me to get an opera house. And uh, I, uh, again, the language difficulty, and uh, uh, I wasn't spending their money, and uh, they didn't have much of it left, and uh, so we just had to get the opera house anyway. And what I did is I had a painting made with, uh, in England, at the Technicolor Company and put a wonderful orchestral score over it. And then for the close-ups in the, in the audience, I uh, faked up a dreadful fake, but it seemed everybody seemed to like it with some red drapery and red velvets and had about 20 people on a miserably cold stage in Rome. And it was in the picture and people accepted it for what it is. But this is, uh, this is a, 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 an example. Uh, this didn't happen all the way through. Some of the battle scenes, we had 5,000 troops and 2,500 of them dressed beautifully in, in costumes that um, are made better in Europe almost than any other place. And uh, in the early months of the picture, uh, much more freedom with with money and budgets and so forth. But I'm speaking of a few instances down near the down near the end of the uh, picture, and the same thing with cutting and uh, with uh, maps. And uh, it just it ran on so long that the 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 budget for an Italian company uh, wouldn't have phased an American company with big resources and Big New York offices, but for a small Italian company that's comparable to a quickie outfit in in Hollywood, this was uh, 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 just a gigantic task, and and none that had not like anyone that had ever been uh, attempted before in Italy. The the uh, sometimes I wish that I'd withheld publishing the book my autobiography until War and Peace was finished, because of the many, many uh, unusual and interesting incidents that happened in the making of a film, and and in many cases so unlike uh, some of the Hollywood situations. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty that can go wrong in Hollywood, too. And plenty of things happen, too, that, that must be overcome in in hollywood and and the director is always in the position that uh, he has it in mind a certain way and uh, therefore no compromise is permissible and that manner must be achieved and that vision that he has uh, not not always a purely personal thing but it is his interpretation that must be achieved and uh, the unity that that he is able to give to it and he's the only man that is able to give a unity to the whole film and the whole production and it's uh it's a question of of, of stick to it don't mind the torpedoes damn the torpedoes and get it anyway george stevens a wonderful example of a man like that he's just immovable he's people, producers, executives they just can't talk him out of anything and he achieves what uh, he feels it should be that is one of the functions of a director not to be uh, uh, too too willful or too personal about it but uh, film is only interesting by uh, one viewpoint just as a, a man writes a book or paints a picture it's his viewpoint. Uh, many painters could go to the same spot, the same location. Grand Canyon, for example. it all come back with a different interpretation, a different mood about it. And that's where it should be. Any painter that's worth his salt at all should bring back his own individuality. Uh, that is, the, 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 the subject expressed through his own individuality. And the same is true... Of making a film. Uh, uh, d- outstanding directors should be able to uh, all make the same story if necessary, but the film and the result would always appear of a quite individual or different dynamic nature. That's what audiences and that's what other people are interested in. This: How does this man live? How does he think? How does he behave? What makes him tick? Someone, and that happens to be, in the case of motion pictures, happens to be the director. As I said before, the uh, the book seemed to cover so many points that I had remembered. But I'll try to add and do a proscript on on some of them if you find that I'm repeating myself feel free to cut it out or do whatever you want to with, it, with this but I'll try to remember some of the some of the incidents not in the book uh, in the in the big parade <coughs> uh, which I did talk about uh wanting to make a war film at the time. Not many had been made. Not many that uh, had an honest uh, uh, viewpoint about it. And uh, that was one of my ambitions, was to make one that was, gave uh, a, a, a different and honest, not a flag-waving viewpoint about it. I, I wanted to show it from the eyes of an individual an In individual who was just swept along with the with the idea of war, who f- was neither a pacifist nor a patriot, and uh, it, it was more as if I were were going, and uh, uh, what 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 I would feel, and uh, uh, I are the average average man. I've always been interested in the average man. That's what the crowd is about, the average man. That's the way the title the crowd came about. Originally called One of the Mob, and then we're afraid that would look like a gangster picture or a labor picture, so we call it One of the Crowd, and then later The Crowd. In uh, the big parade, uh, it was always the viewpoint of the leading character, and that's as if the the uh, leading character is in the, it's more or less a, an idea. But I've always felt is first person, speaking in the first person. He's always in every important scene. There's no, and I've done this quite a number of times. I did it with the Citadel, with Robert Donat. I think with Our Daily Bread, Big Parade, Crowd. The leading character is its everything is is seen from his vision from his eyes uh two or three things that have occurred to me as I say not contained in the book uh in the in the uh, end of the big parade well in the beginning and and the end uh in the original script which uh I worked on very closely. In the silent scripts, there was uh, not the need of writers doing as much as they do today because the director was more or less planning how he was going to tell this story. And directing is, is telling a story with a camera, and you just can't expect a writer to go off and write everything the way the director wants to shoot it. He sees it in a certain way, and... So I always, having been at one time a, 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 a writer of scripts, silent pictures, and also talking pictures that I've worked on since, uh, I felt that I sh- must always be very close to the writing. Well, we had written the the uh, opening of the picture and uh, the end of the picture and the body of the picture, and uh, but... I was some difference with the, with the production heads of the studio about the beginning and end, and they wanted another opening and beginning, I mean a, a beginning and ending made. And uh, so we satisfied them and uh, made uh, this uh, changed version of it. Well, as soon as the picture was shown, it was acknowledged to be quite a wonderful film, but uh, everybody seemed to think that the beginning and end could be much better. And we had some big, important conferences in which it was decided to retake the beginning and ending. And at that time, I simply... I said, well, I have a way of doing it, and I went back and got my original pages that I hadn't been permitted to shoot, and got them out, and we made those scenes as they were originally written, and that's the way the picture went out. Uh, this sort of an incident at the t- uh, today wouldn't faze me at all. I would just take it in my stride, but at that time, a young fellow sort of looking out for all of his rights and all of his thinking, thinking that he might be abused uh, at one time and wanting to be justified in everything he did, Well, it was a big, was rather a strange, ironic injustice, as it were. Uh, but uh, there were so many people saying that that uh, how they had improved the picture by having me retake some scenes. And whenever I'd hear that, I'd uh, get a little riled up. Today, as I say, I wouldn't pay any attention to it. I've learned many things since then about human character and about how to behave and... Uh, how to let those things just go on by, but uh one of the one of the things in this uh retake version was where Jack Gilbert uh, came back with his leg cut off, and uh when Mr. Mayer saw that uh, version i mean saw his the big lover of the screen and one of his big potential stars, a romantic star come in with a with a with a leg cut off at the knee, he was horrified, and he said, "They don't said you can't send that picture out to the public. This might ruin him with this legless hero." So, I was requested and uh, to take another version of it, where where he came limping in, just with a limp, and uh, which I did on a Sunday, which I always hated to work on Sundays, and. Uh, so when the when the cameraman would say, Shall we print that or the script girl would say, What take do you want printed? I said, Print none of them. So the negative was just developed and put away in the in the vault, in in the event that people were too horrified, uh with Gilbert with his leg missing. Well, I'd like to report right now that no one was ever horrified and everyone accepted the leg off and the other uh, negative was never printed, although we shot all the scenes. There were never any prints made, and it was never seen by anyone, which was uh, <coughs> pleasing to me because it was not an honest ending. In the locations of the big parade, uh, we, didn't, we couldn't at that time go very far from Los Angeles, far from Culver City, where the studio was, and there just no forests or, as such around Los Angeles, and there's a few, probably 25 or 40 trees over Elysian Park, and uh, we were supposed to have scenes taking place in Bellew Wood. Of course, la- years later, I went to Bellew Wood, and I found it wasn't so much of a wood that I th- uh, as I thought it was at the time, but I didn't know that. Anyway, I wanted scenes to take place in a forest, so we went over this Elysian Park and lined up these 30 or 40 trees, eucalyptus trees. I knew very well they didn't uh, have eucalyptus trees in that part of France, but we tried to not get too close to them, and uh, uh, we just shot these trees from every possible angle, the same trees, making them look like a huge forest, and we had many letters saying that how much for many... uh, Veterans of Bellow Wood of World War One saying how much this forest looked like the forest in France, but uh, that's uh, uh, one of the things we we had to do. We had to do it in, in in years past much more than now. Now the studios are accustomed to sending crews all over the world, and we wouldn't think of making a picture with. Uh, Many scenes laid in France or any other place without going there uh, there's an incident in the in the crowd that i don't think is in the book too uh, or, or th- this is the, this is the one uh, in which at one time we had a, had to stage a hold up in New york hold up of a cigar store and uh, I used a hidden camera, and uh, the crew were all walking along as if they were pedestrians on the street and the the hold-up man had to come running out of the cigar store get in a in a car with the side curtains all up typical uh, car used by gangsters in the day probably a cadillac and roar away well we didn't have any cameras and evidence and uh, So we were afraid that some passing detective or some police car going by would think it was a real hold up and start shooting at these actors, because the actors looked very much like uh, bandits. And uh, we were quite nervous when this was going on, but nothing happened. Uh, Two or three people on the sidewalk threw up their hands in horror and started yelling hold up, but that helped the scene very much. Unfortunately, I don't think this scene is in the finished picture. I think it was taken out of the picture for some reason or other, but it was uh, a rather unusual scene. Uh, Very often one has to stop and think, and I've been asked many times about films, what's wrong with them, why they're not not better. And uh, this brings us right to brings us face to face with oneself. Why you make films, why you make the sort of films you do. Uh of course I suppose primarily people think that they people are in the in the business for making money, or making profit. Uh but there's a there's a limit to the profit motive. Uh once once you get a, an automobile and a pretty comfortable home, and uh Looks as if your children are going to be taken care of. The profit motive should stop, stopped existing. And theref- then, then one should turn and say, well, uh, why not make films that are going to do a little good in the world, or, or, or that is help help people to to see something new, or see a, a broader horizon, a, a, a broader vision, and. Uh, this has always been uppermost in my mind. I mean, uh, I take no credit for it because it's always been there, and if I wanted to avoid it, I couldn't. It's, that is uh, to uh, try to be... Uh, try to see a little farther than the next person. That's, this is our job, to, to try to see a, a little deeper and then show that, get that somehow or other into the film, so that uh, films are of a progressive nature rather than of a a regressive nature, and they're doing some constructive work rather than destructive work. The horror films, for example, the violent films, they're doing nothing but momentary entertainment while you're there, nothing to think of after, after one leaves the theater, nothing to they, they take nothing home with them and i 've always thought it's a pretty bad deal it's, it's not a very good bargain to go and just be uh, entertained just for a couple of hours and then go home that 's the end of it uh, even 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 uh, financially or fairly. And I've always felt that the motion picture director had, had an obligation to the world in which he lived, that he had this big voice and, big, uh, and method of speaking to so many people. And so many people throughout the world were, were going to see uh, everything that he did and was going, were going to react to it. And uh, uh, it was going to impress them uh, that he should have something definite to say. You uh, should always say something that has some some thought about it. Uh, this the the symbolism in a, in a film uh, from a director's angle uh, can be so impressive. The uh, the images can be the imagery can be so impressive. I've seen in, seen Im instances. Where some man would say that uh, in 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 one of my films, some little might be an insight of a in one case of a shingle flapping on a roof that was in a picture, Wild Oranges. That's probably in the book, but I could talk a little more about it now. Uh, in the case of the big parade, recently a, a, a fellow said, when I was a boy, I went to see the picture, and I remember men sitting in a shell hole, drawing a circle, and spitting into their circle. And then he said, uh, he said I, I remember the, the spit running down the side of the shell hole. He said, that, I never forgot that. Well, look at the strength of the imagery in, in uh, look what it does to people. Look how it uh, uh, imprints some memory on their minds. In the case of the flapping shingle, we just did this as uh, we had a, little invisible wire on it and we pull it up and down and it was almost uh, something that wasn't hardly worth my time to bother with. I looked through the camera and I watched the action of it a couple of times and I said go ahead and shoot it. And it's almost like an insight that you let someone else do. And yet I had half a dozen men, 15 years people uh, say to me 15 years later or 20 years later that they remember that flapping shingle because it occurred at a moment when a flapping shingle would be frightening or would have some connotation, some meaning. And that is the, I cite this as an example of uh, the strong imprint that, that images have. And therefore, look what we can do, look how we can influence children or young minds or impressionable minds, to the, uh, uh, to either good or bad or to the right direction or the wrong direction. And uh, this is the responsibility that one feels uh, when, uh, when one is at the helm of, of such a thing as a motion picture that, that's going to run for years, going to be seen for years and, and uh, shown all over the world. If one has any sort of responsibility towards the human family toward his brother and who can escape such responsibility, uh, it is foolhardy to ignore uh, this, uh, this responsibility and this great voice that we have. Uh, therefore, uh, I have always concluded in, in selecting a story or in making a film and I found it true that, that uh, although uh, there's been many statistics that says uh, the, we're, the, the majority of the audience is uh, teenage level, nevertheless, I've never found an idea of any value. And I don't care whether it's a teenage level or a farm belt or what cross-section of American people or European people uh, that the picture was going to be seen by uh, uh, didn't uh, understand and didn't uh, get what I was driving at. And I've, I've concluded that one should never play down to an audience uh, because there's no such thing as a stupid audience. Taken as a whole... Uh, they know what's going on and they get it. And, I, and I've seen instances where men in the studio and executives and individuals who had authority in the studio didn't get to the point, but I've never seen ins- instances where the audiences failed to get it. I've seen the most subtle movements. I had a, a, a scene in a picture called Billy the Kid in which... Uh, 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 Billy the Kid is in a burning house. The house is burning down all around him, and the roof is falling in, and he has to run out and expose himself to the gunfire outside, and he's standing smoking a cigarette, and he's waiting till the last moment. He drops the cigarette on the floor, and automatically he puts his foot on it to put it out. And... uh, Uh... no, uh, we didn't even show a close-up of his foot stamping the cigarette out on the floor, but we just showed his foot. We could see him about from the hips up, and you could just see his hip twist a little. Now, no one in the studio saw that what he was doing was uh, smashing that cigarette out, the, the burning of the cigarette out on the floor. But as soon as it showed in the theater, and I forgot, I forgot that uh, I had, had done it, had had him do it. But when it showed in the theater, the audience laughed at that point uh, in amusement. And the people who had been working on the film from the studio, they said, what are are they laughing at? And I said, well, they just happened to see this uh, gimmick, a gag, which we call it, of stepping on the cigarette. And they all said they didn't notice it. Well, that's true. That's typical of audiences. And uh, uh, they they just understand it, and uh, if they don't understand it, once sh- we should make it anyway, and 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 let them grow up to it and live up to it, and let them understand it in that way. So this is uh, one of the uh, purposes, one of the the predominant motivation. Uh, I won't say that naturally we like to have nice things and we like to live comfortably and. Uh, without uh, fear of where the next month's rent is coming in but uh, that goal is achieved in many cases rather early but men go right on uh, aiming at amassing of huge fortunes to leave to children they don't think too much of sometimes and uh, but how much more fun, how much better to recognize uh, one's responsibility, anybody that has the public's ear, and uh, to make films that say something, uh, that, that, uh, that, that, that add up to something, or that leave uh, uh, something to take home uh, with, with you and think about, at least until they go to sleep that night, uh, hopefully for a few days a few weeks afterwards or for a few years. Why not? That's the obligation of the, of the motion picture director or the motion picture producer. And uh, uh, in, in the, the, the artistically, it's harder to achieve because his audience is a mass audience. In the case of a book or a magazine, uh, he can write directly. His, his, it's a selective audience but to achieve a, a, a subject with any sort of profundity with a mass audience, then one must relate to a higher form of art or artistic expression in order to make it palatable and acceptable and understandable to every man. And this is perhaps the reason why pictures are more difficult to make, that is good pictures, and why they are received so enthusiastically when these goals are accomplished.